Canucks Central Thursday. Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah with you. As the Canucks get ready for the Minnesota Wild, we've got uh, an hour on the podcast here. So glad you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Subscribe, leave a review. We always have shows even on game days but on game day you also get the post game show so a ton of Canucks content here for you on Canucks Central and this hour is brought to you by your local grip auto and tire quality service and expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today we will get into more of the game story with the Minnesota Wild coming up after four o'clock as the official pregame show will get underway but as we've been, you know, really discussing this team set, especially during the second half of this season and things have been going so well, it's curious to think of which player or member of the organization have you changed your mm. mind on or has altered your opinion of them, whether that is in a good or a bad way. Uh, how would you how would you look at that? It, it's a really interesting ex, uh, experiment because you start going through this Canucks season, how we felt about a lot of things that happened earlier, and what is kind of happening now. And you can do an in season one too, and then you can do one that's a big, a bit bigger yeah. picture. And I was thinking about this a lot today when we were discussing this as a topic for the show. And I found myself going back and forth on this player, on that player. And this may delight you. I kept coming back to one player in particular. And who is that? The player that was acquired for Eric Goodbranson. <laughs> <laughs> Tanner Pearson. And, you know, and, and the thing about Pearson, especially under Boudreaux, when you see... My guy. Exactly. Your dude. But you see how he gets utilized under Boudreaux and how Boudreaux wants him to play a style that really suits the way Tanner Pearson plays. And when you let Pearson do what he does best, man, is he effective day in and day out. Yeah. And to have a guy who's that responsible and that attuned to the details and does help his line mates. And, yeah, not going to put out eye-popping numbers, but definitely fine for the money he's getting paid. So the funny thing about Tanner Pearson uh, and, <laughs> you know, a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of people came into my mentions last night <laughs> when I put out my Canucks awards. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> uh, Tanner Pearson was my unsung hero, mainly because all he does is take slander from people. Yeah. And the contract is awful. He never should have got that money. Three years for him. And they gave him a no-trade clause? Are you kidding me? I get it. The contract was and is a bit questionable. At the same time, for this year, and year one of the three-year deal, so there's certainly some time to go here, but in year one of the deal, Tanner Pearson provided value on that contract. He certainly provided value for it, and more than that he's a really functional player that helps make a line better yep and 
it was hard to appreciate anything because of what happened last year. And if we kind of go back a year before that, when we talked about how Tanner Pearson fit in so well with the team, the issue wasn't really about wanting to keep Pearson. It came down to, well, he's coming off a career year. And if he continues playing like this, how much is he going to demand? Are you talking about a guy who's going to get paid north of $4 million? And that's when you're like, you know what? I don't want to be paying this guy 4 or $5 million potentially because yeah. he's coming off a plus 50-point season, 20-plus goals. He replicates that. You may feel like, okay, you got to pay him $4.5 million or more. I don't like that value for a guy who may even on an off year have 37 points and have 15 goals. But if he's getting paid $3 million, all of a sudden that changes that equation considerably. The problem with what happened last year was he had such an off year. And the team, just like everybody else, he looked so off. And the question became, in three years, how is he going to age? Is he going to be a player that's going to depreciate significantly? Is the pace going to be an issue? And I thought this year in particular, Dan, the fact that we went away from the North Division, the Canadian Division, because things loosened up to some degree. Yeah. There was no more hiding from teams that are fast or, or hiding from teams that play a certain way. And Pearson didn't get exposed. Nope. And I think that really bodes well for how we can play out the rest of this contract that has two years remaining on it. For much of the season, Tanner Pearson uh, was second on the team in shots generated at five on five, only behind Connor Garland. Uh, he obviously fits so well next to JT Miller, even to the point uh, when you know Bruce Boudreau was asked about it, like, yeah, like the, those two get the best out of each other. You know, not a JT gets the best out of Tanner, but also Tanner does things that help JT really click at a high level. And you know, JT's five on five numbers haven't um, you know been as good since Tanner Pearson went out of the lineup. You know, yeah. he had the he had the big game against the Coyotes, but uh, he hasn't been. I mean, he's still been incredible. What am I saying? Um, <laughs> it, it, you know, he went from incredible to, like, slightly less incredible. You know, it's not, yeah. not a huge difference. Um, but it, it's – Tanner does a lot of things that are – you know how we used to make fun of little things Louie, but that's kind of Tanner Pearson, yes. right? He does a lot of good work on the boards. He's never out of position. Uh, if the puck comes to him in the D zone, he's generally making sure that they get the exit out of the zone. Mm-hmm. You know, just again, a he's lot available. Of, a lot of little things yeah. that add up. Yeah. Right. And those things do matter. And yeah. especially when you start seeing teams try to evolve and take that next step. And especially when you watch the good teams around the league and how they have success yeah. and how many players they have that are just professional. And sometimes even the guys that are on the fourth line not getting paid a ton are very professional on those teams. They find a way to create that environment and and that situation where those players live up to that type of standard and they bring in guys that can do it. But he's such a professional player all around. He's never a liability. And and especially when now the focus has become playing down low and battles along the boards are even more important now, you just see Tanner Pearson's value there. And he's a real ideal third guy on a line in a yeah. top six that can that wants to play this type of style. And when if Boudreaux is going to stay here beyond this season, then yes, you can look at Pearson not only and say, okay, his value's changed and he's the guy you can probably move if you want to, maybe get something. But at the price point and with the style you want to play – does it almost make more sense to hold on to him than just dispatch him for nothing? He's an asset now, though. Yes. Right? Like, I, I don't think that's a player who is immovable, as other people may have thought. Not at all. When he signed the contract. And so, when you go into the summer and you're starting to think of how the Canucks can maneuver this lineup, I think Tanner Pearson is a part of that equation, whether it's as somebody who stays 
or somebody you look at moving in a hockey deal or to open up some cap space. I think there's options there with Tanner Pearson, but he's played so well this year that um, it's another guy that you might think, well, how do we replace that production Mm -hmm. or that value uh, if we do move on from that player. So there's there's a lot of question marks around Tanner Pearson. A lot coming in on uh, the Dunbar Lumber text line with this, and we'll get to some of your texts. Also some really interesting comments coming in on Twitter as well. For our live listeners, you can listen live on the Sportsnet app. On your radio, of course, HD 96.9 HD 3. And also with your smart speaker, hey, play Sportsnet 650. Um, the player I kept coming around to was Tyler Myers. Mm. (laughs) And, uh, I know people (laughs) like it when we talk about the stars of this team and, and, you know, uh, Pedersen, I wasn't happy with how he played at the beginning of the year, but you're seeing him really come around and find his game again. Hughes has been dynamite all year long, but maybe there was some people that sold their Quinn Hughes stocks after last season. Um, For the most part, Tyler Myers is the guy that I I didn't know what you could get out of him, but this midway through that mega five-year deal he signed, he's put together his best season yet as a Vancouver Canuck. He has, and the reason I didn't go with him is because I've always kind of stand for Tyler Myers. Yes. And even going back the past few years, I've always said he's not as bad as people make him out to be. We can be it's critical. not as bad as the analytics put make it out to be. Yeah, and, and even those analytics at times, when you've taken into consideration the minutes he plays, and that's why you look at some of the other models, they have him at a net neutral player. And when you consider the minutes he plays, and that's you know over 20 minutes and those are hard minutes, if you're neutral playing that role, it's the Mark Burley comparison that we threw out yesterday about... Um, Tyler Myers. You know, yeah. it's not, it's not, it's not easy just you know to throw two hundred inning, innings, even if your ERA is like four and a half, and it's not exactly you're not an ace or anything. But hey, you you can get out there and hold your own and do that, and that's something Tyler Myers does represent, and he's shown that more than anything so far this season. The number, obviously, six million. He's not worth six million. That's clear. But. I see people texting in. Q says the same thing on our text inbox. Myers looks so much better this season, and now six million looks uh, totally acceptable. Now I'm not sure it's acceptable to me still because of if I'm paying a guy six, you got to bring me more than just neutral top four minutes and and you know have a few traits that are positive. But if he's a free agent today, how much does he get paid in the market? He would be the third best right shot D on the market. Yeah, and it's not exactly a a stout no. list of high end defensemen it's outside of Latang. Yeah, yeah, it's Latang, Klingberg, and a bunch of guys. Yeah, right. So then there would be Myers. He still gets five million at least on the open market. Now maybe it's not a five year term because he's not mm-hmm. uh, he's not as young as he was three years ago when he signed this current deal. So that would factor in. But I still think he's about five million dollar player on the open market. And that's generally on in free agency, you have to overpay to get players. So, yes, he may not be worth that, but that's still what he would get on the open market. I just, you know, Myers plays a very, um, it's a role it's, that's hard to win over people in. 
You know, he plays a ton of PK minutes. He's not a great penalty killer. No, but he plays a ton of PK minutes. Um, He he gets a lot of minutes against Tufts, as you mentioned, but doesn't get any power play time. Like, even in Winnipeg, Mm -hmm. he got some power play time, was able to put up some points. Um but he's he's not really getting that that opportunity here. He's he's got a bit of a different role with the Vancouver Canucks than he did back in Winnipeg. So yeah, it's it's really a a a role that he's going to have a tough time winning in. Maybe one that he's not really entirely suited for. But I think he's provided the Canucks with a solid baseline that they've absolutely needed on the right side because uh, there's not much beyond him on the right side. Yeah, and, and, and listen, uh, I'm not a big proponent of, of touting plus-minus stats, but for a team like Vancouver this year, and look at all the ups and downs, him sporting a plus-21 is not just... Yeah. It, again, I'm not going to sit here and, and say that his plus-minus is something you should really pay attention to, but it's just a little notable stat that you look at to get some sort of perspective. It's the highest total he's had in his career. And if you get to that type of number, when your team isn't exactly this high-power team that's been scoring a ton at even strength, it shows you how effective that pairing Well, him and OEL have been good. That's the point. They've been good. I mean, and OEL is plus 9, not even at the plus 21. So, And again, OEL has been thrown into different situations at times as well. But just to kind of outline the season Myers has had, yeah, the production for a guy making $6 17 points, it's, it's not what you want. You still want more. But... If if you if we were to pose this question to the Canucks management team and even the coaching staff, and Boudreaux himself has come out and said that he had a different opinion on Myers, and now when he's seen him, he thinks differently of him. Yep. However, if we were asked this asked this question, pose this question to management, I wouldn't be surprised if a few of them would mention his name. Now, again, I wouldn't mention him because I've always liked him more than most people have for, for Myers. And even though we've talked about the number, but for management, I think they'd kind of they would agree with you and with a lot of people that are responding to this on our on the text inbox and also on Twitter. Uh, Rager coming in with Chase on. Trevor came in on Twitter uh, saying Chase on as well. A few of those votes yeah. coming through and. A lot of our listeners are taking it as you know, bottom of the roster types. Uh, Lamico, uh, Brad Hunt are some votes that I've that I've been hearing so, here. So you know what? Within the season, yeah. I would have said Lamico. Yeah, but it's kind of changed because now he's not the player he was with the model line. No, and he showed a lot better recently, having Lockwood and Highmore yep. come back, and the speed is back on his wing, and all of a sudden now Lamico looks a bit better. But the fact that you need to have speedy players with him, again, I'm okay with him being around, but I'm not as bullish on him. If he needs that to be at his best or be better than what he's shown, it's not a major red flag, but it tells me that, okay, that, okay He's not going to be the focal point of a line himself. You really need to have two speedy guys on his wing for him to be effective. Is that is that the worst thing though? No, it's okay. But but like, does it matter how you get to a point where you find a good line? Like, yeah. If something's working, mm-hmm. why pick faults with how it's working? Okay, and you know what? That's fair. Let's say, for instance, uh, in a fourth line role. Yeah. It's perfectly fine. And sometimes I'm guilty of looking for something better and greater. And you yeah. look beyond what you have and you say, okay, you know what? This is passable. And, and I totally agree. He's a passable guy. I, I qualify him. I bring him back. And if you know you have him as your placeholder at the very least on the fourth line next year, you feel pretty good about your fourth line. If he's the guy you got to beat yeah. for somebody to be your fourth line center. But 
I went from thinking, okay, maybe there is something there that maybe he surprises us and takes another step and becomes maybe a bona fide third line center down the road. Like right. maybe there's something there that he can do. I'm not as not as bullish on that happening. And, and I didn't think it was going to happen necessarily, but I thought, okay, I was intrigued. You know, yeah. I was like, like, I'm intrigued by this. Can he do more with another offseason? And perhaps with another offseason gets a little quicker. There's another level he can attain. But because of the market drop-off in his game when we saw Mott and Highmore leave his line, it, it, it just gives me less confidence that he's going to be able to do that. Well, and, and there is a concern of... Hey, like Highmore's a guy who's been hurt quite a bit. He's going to get hurt with the way that he plays. Um, you know, if those guys go out of the lineup, does that really affect how your fourth line performs? Because you need those players to get the best out of yeah. Lamico. Um, it, it's an interesting thought and an interesting process to kind of go through. But a lot of uh, our listeners have taken the mindset of. Um, you know, bottom of the roster types that they didn't expect much of that have provided more. You know, mm-hmm. Brad Hunt, who is up to what sixteen assists on the year or sixteen points around there. I mean, what else do you want from Brad Hunt? The guy has sixteen points in forty-five games. We just yeah. talked about Myers. He has seventeen and seventy-seven. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Brad Hunt's always been a guy that's been able to put up a decent amount of points. Massive bang bang for the buck. Now, defensively, he's not exactly stout. And I see people mis- responding to the Myers thing about the contract. And, hey, we all agree the money's not great. And and ultimately, it comes down to the inefficiency of having, having Myers and OEL making yes. over $13 million combined as a pair. It's more about your opinion of their play. And that's kind of separating it from the contract. Now, those... The argument to just move Myers to clear, to clear the money and use it differently, I agree with that. I think that's the thing to do, and now you have an avenue to do so. And like we mentioned yesterday, I think it depends on whether the organization makes that move without knowing what they're going to replace that with. Yes. And the fact that Myers becomes a better asset as time goes on and gets closer to the end of his contract as a right-hand defenseman, you can get something back in return for. So it's not a just a simple thing to move out. But I agree, it's inefficient. To your point, though, about the efficiency, this is why... I, Everybody loves the Chasons and the Brad Hunts right now. Yeah. What they're giving you for guys making near minimum, and you're comparing it to the money that they're making, like Myers is making in the production. And again, Brad Hunt can't play those minutes and be as effective as, no. oh, as Myers if would you be. Have Meyer, if you have Hunt playing those minutes, you're, you're getting clobbered. But the reason the Canucks right now are also making it interesting down the stretch is you have players that are contributing that are depth guys. Yep. When you have a number six defenseman or a seven, really, in Brad Hunt, who's coming in and providing that much offense for you, that helps you win games. Now you're having guys that are depth players that are chipping in, helping you win. And to Rager's point, when guys went down, Chason's become invaluable. And now he's going to be back against Minnesota. But if he's not here during this last little stretch and doesn't have 10 points in seven games... We're having conversations about the draft pick more than anything and how the season is over right now. Well, the Canucks have a top four that's that's not going to get crushed uh, and hasn't been on most nights at five-on-five, five, right, with Hugh Shen, OEL Myers. And their third pair has been solid as well. Yes, they get very sheltered minutes, but they're able to succeed in those minutes. You know, we've come a long way from Hutton Goodbranson just getting absolutely yeah. clobbered. But those guys are night. also forced to play bigger minutes. Right. But... They were put into spots of the lineup that they just could not succeed in. And now you have players that are more likely to be able to live up to the spots that they're in in their lineup. It's still not a perfect picture, and it needs some adjustments over the course of the offseason to get even better. Because if you're going to be a legit playoff contender, you need to get better in these areas. But 
for what it is and what we expected of it, the defense on the whole has been a lot better than we thought. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, I don't think you can debate that very much. Big picture, it's got some question marks, no doubt, but it has performed better than any of us thought coming into this season. And it brings me to a point that I, it comes to the, the salary cap. Yeah. Because every, every person that's texting into the show right now is saying, how can you say that about Myers? How can you say that about Pearson? Uh, even in my mentions yesterday, people are like, how can you pay $5 bucks for Connor Garland? All he does is like spin around and shoot into the goalie's chest. He doesn't do anything productive. And uh, it's one of my biggest pet peeves about the salary cap is that we can't just look at a player and yeah. evaluate that player and objectively say whether or not they are playing well in the role that they're in versus the contract and whether yeah. or not they're living up to that contract. Like OEL is never going to be able to live up to the seven and change that he's paid here in Vancouver reality. And that's always going to be a factor as we look at him. It's like, yeah, he's played really well this year, but that contract is awful for the next five years. Like they got to keep paying that guy like that much money. Like that's, that's awful. Like how can you build a team around that? That's always going to be the context rather than, just look at it objectively and honestly speak about how a player has performed. And for a lot of these guys, yes, they've performed better than we would have expected, but our expectations are mostly based off of what they are being paid. Has Brock Besser played well this year? No, because he's being paid this and his qualifying offer is that. So you're, you're always um, restrained or, you're forced to look at a player based on their contract rather than just assessing how they're played in the role that they're being deployed in. Well, what we, what we try to do as much as possible is have parallel discussions. One is about form, how players are performing, how this helps the team win, and how they can optimize what they currently have. And you talk about that within that kind of framework. And the other parallel discussion is hey what the money means big picture to your chances of winning what you have to do to maximize your roster and those are two different discussions and i think what oftentimes happens is they blend together in how people perceive those discussions yeah and when you start talking positively about a guy who's not making a ton of money always kind of draws back to the money but you're we are able to have different discussions here about these types of guys and what they provide and and honestly Every single team has inefficient contracts. What needs to happen is your balance of surplus value contracts need to be greater than the contracts that are not living up to how much they're getting paid. And you feel a lot better when Pedersen's outperforming his deal. You feel very good when Miller's outperforming his deal, when Horvat's doing that. Yeah. You don't feel as great when Besser's not really meeting it. You don't feel as great when you see Myers and OEL, even though they've been fine and OEL to that. I mean... Oliver ekman Larson this year has been a bonafide top four defenseman. Like, he's been good. Like, legit good. Like, even if you go by metrics, like, he's been, he's had a good season. He's maybe a $6 million defenseman. Yeah. But that's not that bad. You're not talking about a guy that's, that should get paid, like, $4 million or something, right? Yeah. You're talking about a guy that probably should get paid $6 million. That's getting paid seven point two six on the cap for you right now. When you have other guys, like Quinn Hughes, playing at a $10 million defenseman level... Yeah, just do the math. When you have guys that exceed their values, then you don't worry as about much about guys that are maybe a little bit overpaid. You can have a couple of guys that are a bit overpaid. You can't have too many of those guys. Yeah, and look, 
you know, I get it. Canucks fans have watched Louis Erickson here for the last five years. And, you know, there's a $6 million player that should have been making like a buck and a half with the way that he was performing yeah. here in Vancouver. So I, I totally get all of that. But at the same time, it's it's always going to frustrate me about the salary cap because uh, there should be a space where we're just able to assess players objectively uh, without the contract really impacting that. Yeah. It's always going to be a part of the big picture discussion. I, I understand that, but we're here. We're in it for this season. There's five games left. They, they're finding a way to try and make it interesting here after the tough loss to Ottawa. Assess the players as they are, yeah. and, and the big picture questions we can really tackle as the offseason comes. Exactly. Right now, the team still is is alive in this race to see if they can get into the postseason and, and how interesting they can make it. I see Jacob mentioning the wild card perhaps being the more likely avenue, and we'll talk more about that during the pregame show and everything. And yeah, there's an avenue that opens up. And one of the reasons why they've also had a chance here with guys getting injured is because guys have stepped up, and especially a guy like Vasily Putkolzin. And I'd say my opinion of him hasn't changed from the start of the season to now as far as him as a prospect and what he can mean to this organization long term. But my timeline, my opinion of that timeline may have changed. Right. Because of how he's closing out the season. So I, I don't, I, I wasn't not expecting him to be a good player. But based on how the season went, I wasn't expecting the way he's closing the season. And how he's closing the season is making me rethink the timeline of him making a bigger impact. I want to get a couple of uh, listener submissions in here. Brandon Pods, hands down, seeing him get more comfortable with North America's style and confident with using his size. Uh, Rokam, EP40. He was damn near invisible when the season started. I was ready to write him off. I'm surprised we didn't get more OEL, or sorry, more uh, Elias Pettersson votes just based on uh, how many times we were on the post-game show and people were calling in, trade this guy, he's a bum, he got paid, and now he's <laughs> bleeping <laughs> off, whatever you want to say. Um, but, yeah, uh, you were a little too early on the trigger fingers there. And, hey, I, I, I was a part of the criticism of Elias Pettersson, but... There's a difference between criticizing a player when they are struggling and totally forgetting what their ceiling is or potential is as a player. And I think there's a lot of people in this market that did that with Elias Pettersson when he was really going through it in the first half of the season, Sat. Yeah, and that's why, like for me, he didn't come into this discussion because it comes down to what you viewed him. But because of how the ups and downs of the season went, you can totally do a kind of power ranking of this at the start of the year and how you felt about it as time went on. Well, both Pedersen and Hughes, like they both got the big contracts, but they were both coming off years that didn't really inspire the fan base as much. No, and with Hughes, the biggest question was defensively, his yep. strength, can he handle it? Is he even good defensively and all that sort of stuff? And I'd say for a lot of people, he should have changed their opinion on that. 100% he should have. Like, it's been a a 180 of where Quinn Hughes was defensively last year to what he is now. Yes. His angles are better. He's a lot stronger, does not get beat physically as often. It'll happen once in a while still, but doesn't happen often. Like Hughes has really changed or should have really changed the narrative on himself being a poor defensive player. Um, The stars are always a part of the conversation. It's Canuck Central coming up. Harmon Dial is going to join us. We'll get his take on this. And also, does he reevaluate 
JT Miller and Bo Horvat based on scoring up around the league. And since they need new contracts, how does that factor in to what market value potentially is for those players on their extensions? It's Dan Riccio, Satyar Shah, Canuck Central. Canuck Central, this hour is brought to you by Grip Auto and Tire. Friendly service and expert advice Expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. Uh, understand we're having some uh, technical difficulties with the over-the-air feed. As always, if you're trying to listen live to Canuck Central, you can do so via the Sportsnet app, with the Radio Player Canada app as well. And even on your smart speaker, it'll dial you in online. Just say, play Sportsnet 650. That's all you got to do, and you'll get whatever show is on at that time. It's Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah. The uh, discussion about players changing your mind over the course of the season. I wonder if the coach factors in here, too. Mm. Like, how has... I've always had a pretty high opinion of Bruce Boudreaux. Um, I didn't. I've never really bought into the playoff, you know, failures type mm. of thing. Um, but Bruce Boudreaux, at the same time, has been a lot better than any of us expected when he signed that contract. Yeah, I mean, he, he's been the perfect. I mean, he has actually been the perfect fit based on the results and maximizing this roster. I can't imagine somebody else doing better. Really. No, you really can't. My biggest question was, would they go after a coach like Boudreaux that is more offensively inclined and more aggressive because we had heard the types of guys they've been after and what they were trying to do as an organization, be better defensively, be harder to play against, and defensive awareness and all that sort of stuff. That, that was a focus of the offseason. And don't forget, this organization did take a bit of a run at Claude Julian before hiring Boudreaux, at least in checking in on that. And you see yeah. an old type of coach that he is. So I was mostly surprised by the fact they did ultimately go after Boudreaux. And they certainly made the right choice. It's uh, Canuck Central. Let's bring in our next guest covering the Canucks at the Athletic. It is Harmon Dial. Uh, thanks for this, Harm. How are you? Doing pretty well. How are you guys? Uh, we're, we're doing all right. Um, the, the discussion so far has been uh, which player has... Uh, changed your mind the most this season for for good or bad um, has there been somebody on the Canucks that uh, you have a better or worse opinion of after the way the season has gone yeah I think in terms of I guess performance relative to expectations I think uh, Luke Shen has quickly become su- such an essential piece I mean it's hard to sort of imagine now but you think back to here's a guy that wasn't even in the Canucks top six uh, on uh, on opening night, and now you look at him and he's playing top four minutes with, with Quinn Hughes, and he brings qualities that this roster doesn't have, right, in terms of his toughness. We saw against Dallas mm-hmm. when he stepped up um, uh, and, and fought Jamie Benn after that hit on Hughes, and, and that's obviously been an issue in years past where sometimes the Canucks' top guys get hit and, and they aren't a hard enough team to play against. There isn't someone there who's going to answer the bell, and I, th- I still think to a certain extent that sort of physicality matters and he brings that unique dimension. Um, and even off the ice as a leader, I mean, I was just, uh, I think, thinking back to 
the uh, Patrick Alvin's press conference following the trade deadline, do you hear him talk about <clears throat> the, deci- the decision to retain Shen and talk about how much cultural value Shen has in setting the standard? And it's so cliche about this guy's the last guy off the ice at practice, but it's genuinely true for Shen when you are at these practices. And I think the type of person and character he is, it's um, he's just become essential. And that's why I think it was a no brainer to keep him, um, especially considering how little he makes. So here's a guy that I think going into the season, we thought, Oh, he might be a, a decent six, seven and he'll be able to fill in minutes and, and be physical. And he's been a lot more than that. Um, so to me, I think Shen sticks out. And then I think also Tanner Pearson is, um, exceeded expectations after what I thought was a down season last year. Yeah, Tanner Pearson is is uh, usually my guy in these conversations, um, but I, I, I'm starting to notice a lot of people have come around on on Pearson. And one thing that's kind of stuck st- stood out to me about Luke Shen's game, like he's he's never going to be the fastest guy, but it seems he's improved his puck skills. Like not that he's ever like really dangling a ton out there, but he is able to make a quick move to at least give himself a little bit of space to then make a pass and help the breakout get his own exit. It it just feels like he's done a lot of little things to his game that have helped him overcome some of the things that, you know, would hold him back. Yeah, and that was a big point of emphasis for him when things started to uh, fall apart for him in Anaheim a few years ago when he was getting sent down. And Mm -hmm. he spent a lot of time working with Adam Oates on reinventing his game and understanding that the way the speed and and skill of the game is evolving, that um, Shen needs to... We all know he's not going to be a dynamic defenseman. He's not going to be the one engineering breakouts, but you have to be able to make the little uh, bumps, the 5-10 to foot passes... Um, you've got to be able to connect on uh, guys and, and you can't uh, you need a certain level of, uh, of agility to be able to escape um, checks and make sure that when you're going to retrieve pucks in the defensive zone that uh, you you aren't essentially stuck and, and easy to pin and um, four checkers are, are able to kind of spend a lot of um, uh, time in the offensive zone and that's where Shen's put a ton of I, I know in, in having spoken, uh, to him and, and people around him, he's, he he realized a few years ago that that was what it was going to take for him to uh, adapt to the modern game, and you absolutely do see it. He um, is someone who, especially with that first pass, I think is is the big thing is he's able to consistently make that, um, and and that's really the assignment when you're with a player like Quinn Hughes, right? Because we know Quinn Hughes has that escapability. All you need to do is Quinn Hughes's partner is don't mess up. Don't turn the puck over um, in the offensive zone. Make sure you can you can make the simple uh, DVD pass to to keep the play alive. And that's where Shen has really excelled. And I think the big thing, too, about him is he doesn't make mistakes in large part because he understands um, his limitations as well. He knows his game so well in terms of what he can do, what he can't do. And he's consistently putting himself in positions mm-hmm. positions to succeed, as opposed to where you look at someone like Tarka Pullman earlier in the year when he was paired with Hughes. And I think he, uh, Pullman has more physical gifts. He's certainly a much better skater. Um, but Pullman didn't really seem to have a great understanding of um, how to use his, for instance, skating, when to use it, when not to use it. And, and he'd make more 
sort of mistakes with its puck skills. So absolutely, I think that's an area where Shen has uh, improved a lot relative to earlier in his career. Well, and it also it does show how players can improve. And the, and the thing, however, that's tough to improve is is kind of the, having that overall hockey sense and everything like that. And that sometimes becomes the issue. And I do wonder too, the overall limitations about some of the defensive awareness leads to the fact that the Canucks, as much as they've been good defensively, comparatively speaking, their underlying kind of numbers and some of the micro stats also kind of show how many slot passes they give up, right? And how much east-west movement there is before a shot goes off. And the quality does go up when you take those into consideration. Those factors and I just wonder if that's just kind of comes into the overall ineffectiveness of just each guy maybe being asked to do something they're not perfect to do like Myers for instance he's done a good job this year OEL same thing but are they ultimately being put in a position to be the best versions of themselves given the need of this roster and the roles they're being asked to play yeah it's it's a bang on question and I think that's where even with OEL and Myers they've never earlier in their careers on on past teams like you said they've played well overall but they've never really been shut down guys, right? Whether you look at Myers and the type of role that he had in Winnipeg or even before that in Buffalo. Um, OEL obviously played tough minutes, but that was more in, a, more in a sense of him being a puck mover. And certainly last season uh, with Arizona, he had taken a, a step back and, and was playing more second pair type matchups. And Chikrin was taking on some of those tougher, uh, tougher minutes. And um, now to their credit, again, kind of like you mentioned, they've, adapted fairly well considering uh, their skill sets and what they have and don't have in, in their games. But you're right where I think Chris Tanev's departure has, has I think been one of the most important ones. And I think when the decision came with that contract of should the Canucks keep him or not, it was easy to look at his number of injuries, uh, the lack of durability, his age and, and some of the declining uh, mobility and think to yourself that's a really risky contract and the Canucks shouldn't um, shouldn't go there and that's certainly the the stance that I kind of had was if it's going to be a four or five year contract to retain Tanev you might be um, there's there's so much risk on the back end of the deal that the Canucks may be better trying to move on and, and yet Tanev that sort of skill set that, that he has um, it, it's a, there's such a glaring need for it on the current roster now, especially on the right side where um, it does take, I think, certain defensive instincts to when there is a, a, a breakdown, instinctually know what passing lane to clog. And um, I think the biggest thing is having that situational awareness of where every player on the ice is. And that's where um, when you don't maybe have that awareness, teams are able to sort of move off the puck and before you know it there's a player on the back door that you know it's, it's only a half second read um, that you maybe missed and and that's leading to a backdoor sort of one-timer look and um, the game's just so fast that I think um, it takes a certain level of intelligence sometimes it isn't just being uh, a great man-on-man one-on-one defender anymore um, and you're right I, I don't think they have enough of that uh, defensive intelligence not only on the back end but I think even up front, that's uh, certainly a pro- that certainly needs to uh, be a priority. Is um, how many really intelligent two-way forwards do they have? And, and certainly, you hope um, as someone like Vasily Podkolzin evolves, that he'll obviously mature into that type of player. Um, but even you look at a Bo Horvat, right? We talk about players that are maybe miscast, not the perfect role. Horvat's had a phenomenal season, but. I think we all know at this point, despite how well he is in the faceoff circle, that he's not really a, a signature matchup center. He's a lot better offensively than he is than he is defensively, and yet 
here's a guy who year in year out has had to play against top lines, and that's typically typically a role where I think if the Canucks had um, the type of third line checking center that could take on those matchups, it would free up Horvat. And, you know, of course Dickinson was brought up to brought in to be that type of player, but it hasn't worked out. So I think the defensive intelligence is something um, that's in need not only in the back end, but even with uh, even with the forward group. Armand Dial, our guest here on uh, on Canuck Central, a, a player that's uh, been obviously on fire lately. Maybe not so much against the Ottawa Senators, but Elias Pettersson, his his reemergence has been a big part of the Canucks getting back into this playoff race. Um, is is this the best version of Pettersson we've ever seen? It's a really good question. I think it's absolutely got to be up there. Um, I mean, I was thinking this is. At, at the very least, his best stretch of hockey I've seen since the the twenty nineteen twenty season. Um, is he back to he, that level, or has he taken a step? I, I think he's. I think it's pretty comparable to the nineteen twenty mm-hmm. season. Um, obviously, it's a stretch here where he's well over a point per game. Um, so maybe I think offensively, it's more prolific than you saw uh, at points. But I mean, it's it's if it's not, it it, it has to be very close to the best version of Elias Pettersson I've, I, I've ever seen. And, and really, it's the combination of uh, a lot of different factors. It's not just, of course, the offensive production, but how he's breaking plays up uh, defensively, how he's driving play, the involvement in uh, transition. And the thing that I'm sort of noticing, the, the common trait in all of these things, is he's seeing the play that nobody else on the ice is able to see. And he's anticipating and ready to make that play um and that's why it's so tough to defend him right now um especially when you look at for instance the power play it's, it's funny sometimes um he you know we talked about Pedersen on the power play before and, and he needs to be more than just the one-timer from the right circle and that's where I think he started to evolve where now if you've noticed he loves that backdoor mm-hmm. uh quick pass to the net front guy and what you'll notice is a lot of times the net front guy isn't even ready for that and and it's obviously led to a couple of goals um, but I think back to, I can't remember which game it was, um, the one where um, Pedersen went back door and, and Besser hit the post. And um, it just seems like whether it's those situations or I even think about that, um, the, the two-on-ones, some of them that, that uh, Pedersen has been able to convert on recently where um, I think of the Richardson goal, everybody against uh, Vegas, I think it was, everybody in the building, when there's a two-on-one with Pedersen and Richardson is is hoping praying that Pedersen's the one to shoot it right you've got Richardson um who with all due respect hasn't really been much of a score this season at all he's a guy who's been on waivers so and yet Pedersen's playing 40 chess because he knows hey everybody's going to expect that in this situation I'm going to shoot he looks up sees the play sees that the defender's all the way committed he sees that Leonard's all the way committed to the shot and he goes you know what I'm going to slide a perfect pass to Richardson um, and it's just he's operating and thinking at a different level, and it's that hockey IQ that I think is separating him right now, um, and that's why he's consistently been um, the best player on either team uh, in these games, and, and you just hope that um, with this kind of stretch that he's had, he's hopefully able to kind of carry that momentum and confidence into the offseason and have that belief and train and, and know that, hey, okay, I still have it in me, and hopefully that can propel him to kind of take that next step and be this sort of player that he has been over these 25, 30 games 
consistently over a full season, and, and that can hopefully be um, the sort of breakout where he's not just a first-line center now, but hopefully he can be someone we talk about as a top-10 centerman in the NHL. Well, and also what it kind of shows is the baseline for this team and how much higher it can be next season. Even if you make some moves to take a slight step back next year, there is a world where there's internal improvements. And let's say Pedersen takes another step, which I'm expecting him because I think you're right. I've kind of pushed back on the notion this is is the best Pedersen he's he's taken a step because I think he's back to the level he showed at his peak in year two. But considering this is now um, year four for, uh, for him in the NHL, if he hasn't taken that year four leap, that happens next year into year five, then all of a sudden you look at what Demko provides, Quinn Hughes and what he is, what Elias Patterson brings. Plus, you also have a bunch of other guys you're holding on to. So even if you say move a top six forward and take a slight step back, your team may not be considerably worse if that guy takes another step and so do another couple of young guys, including a guy like Put Colson. Absolutely. I think you nailed it in terms of uh, when you look at Pedersen now, it's it's similar to the peak of what he was in year two. And obviously as guys get closer to year four and year five, that's where they can sometimes take a big leap. And um, so absolutely, I think you can sort of hope um, and, and have optimism for that. And even when you think about, say, you look at the way Florida, for instance, became a contender, and we know how well Bill Zito did in identifying undervalued talent and building out a supporting cast from essentially scratch and the number of reclamation projects and all these great moves that he made. But I think the underrated part of Florida's story and how they've been able to ascend is the next step that their top players were able to take and the internal improvement that sort of allowed them to take the next step. When you look at, say, what Barkov um, was and the step that he's taken as franchise elite two-way centerman um, who, who just racks up all the points. And now you have Jonathan Huberto, um, he was always a great first-line winger, but now he's leading the leading the league in, in assists. He's challenging for, for the Art Ross, um, the step that Aaron Ekblad took, right? He was the sort of guy who uh, was a solid top-pair defenseman, but now he's sort of taken, taken the next step and um, obviously ran into some injury issues. But I think at the midway point of the season, we were talking about um, before at least Yossi and Makar started to run away, is this a guy who's going to challenge for the Norris? And that sort of step that Ekblad took, the sort of step that uh, Mackenzie Rieger took. Uh, obviously, Pedersen stands, stands out at the top of the list in terms of who are Vancouver's young players that can really take that next step. So you talk about, um, I think, a Pedersen um, sort of um, stands out. I think with Quinn Hughes, he quietly has taken, I think, uh, that, that step uh, this season, at least in terms of solidifying his defensive game. I still think there's more, and, and I'm curious to know, for him to take the next step, would it require him finding the high-end Tanev-like partner, or is he going to just be so good that he takes that next step regardless? And, and so I'm curious to see what um, nec- the next couple of years look like for Quinn Hughes and, and his development, um, obviously with Nils Hoaglander and Vasily Podkolzin, um, what kind of steps that they can take. Um, even if, say, someone like a Brock Besser is back, right? He's He's been up and down the last few years, and we saw the sort of player that he can be last season when he was the Canucks' best forward. If he's, if, if he's closer to resembling the version of himself that he was last season than he was this season, then I think that can be uh, another source of internal improvement. So um, absolutely, I think when you look at this core, um, one of the things that you can sort of hope for um, – even is that even if 
um, you say have some departures in the offseason and maybe the team on paper isn't isn't quite as good as it was this season. Um, there's a there's a decent chance that some of these young guys can take that next step and help mitigate that loss. Uh, we have about one minute, so not really enough time to flush this out. But with scoring up across the league, you see guys like JT Miller and Bo Horvat having career years. Uh, how does that factor into potential contract extension talks this summer for those two players? That's a really good point. I think um, certainly for the team, that's the argument you kind of have to be making and, and sort of bringing up uh, production relative to the rest of uh, rest of the league, especially because contracts are negotiated all off comps, right? So I think using the um, uptick in league-wide scoring, that's definitely, I think, a feather in, in Vancouver's cap that, uh, that I'd, I'd be really trying to push hard. Um, but, yeah, I'm going to be interested to hear and, and sort of, as we get closer, to, closer into the offseason, talk to people around the league about is that uh, a factor or are we going to scale production relative to the rest of the league? I uh, appreciate you being quick on that one. Uh, thanks for this, Harm. Always appreciate your insights. Thanks, guys. Uh, there is Harmon Dial of The Athletic joining us here on Canuck Central. Uh, just wanted to shout out one listener who uh, mentioned Nils Hoaglander as a player whose uh, perception has changed after the year they had. Ooh, uh, and I think Lucas mentioned in a negative way. He's like fourth liner at best yeah. now. They haven't missed them at all. And ups and downs for young players, I would say. And I'd say to still hold on to your stock with Nils Hoaglander, but undoubtedly a slight step back this year. Uh, the mailbag is coming on a mailbag Friday tomorrow. Subscribe to the podcast. That way you never miss an edition of Canuck Central.